0: We'll lift them up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our day. We thank you for the gathering of the saints that we can gather under your means of grace and uh, listen to your word and learn more about you and your coming kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you give us clarity of thought as we unpack these things about the day of the Lord and uh, that we place these things in our hearts that we persevere to the last day. I lift up Vladimir and Oksana. I pray for your your hand to be upon them. I pray for restoration of their things, that you would uh, bless them and keep them and protect them and use their ministry, Lord, to proclaim your greatness and your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, last week we were talking about the 70th week of Daniel. And my goal here is relating the 70th week of Daniel to various terms in eschatology and showing you that many of them are synonymous, namely the 70th week of Daniel, and the day of the Lord. So we had talked about this prophecy where I had laid out the 70 weeks, and I showed you how they broke down. Then we talked about how the 70th week of Daniel is also synonymous with the tribulation, and also the great tribulation. So let me get out my pointer. What I'm claiming is the 70th week of Daniel from the scriptures is synonymous with this last seven years, also referred to as the tribulation period. But we also said that that great tribulation period, the last three and a half years, where Israel is going to be under great tribulation from the Antichrist, is also within that time period. The reason I focused on that last time is because many claim that the entirety of the seventieth week is not God's wrath. And what I proved is no, we can know that the entirety of the last seven years is really God's wrath. So that's what we focused on last time. Now, this time we're going to be focusing on how the 70th week, that is the last seven years, is also the beginning of this time period that's referred to in the Old Testament as the Day of the Lord. And I gave everyone a reading assignment. That was Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 11, which talks about that time period. So before I go any further, does anyone... First of all, did anyone read Isaiah thirteen, six through eleven? Did anyone have time? okay, Norman, Clodorus, good good students? And Ryan and some others. Does anybody who read it, any of you have any comments on some of the things that you read or the significance of what you read? Anybody want to comment on anything? No? Well, let me let me get started and why I had you read that passage. Isaiah thirteen is a passage that Jesus alludes to in his Olivet discourse, as I will show you. Now, in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord quite often. So does Amos, so does Joel, so does Zephaniah. It is the major theme of prophecy in the Old Testament. What is the day of the Lord about? The day of the Lord is about three things. Number one, that God would, he would one day bring about all of his promises that he had promised to Israel. Now, stop there for just a moment. You might say, well, wait a minute, I'm a Gentile American Christian in 2019 America, why does that matter to me? Because the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, the future promises given to Israel are your promises too. As Paul says in Romans 11, you are grafted in. Okay, so these are your promises too. So it's about the restoration of all the promises to Israel. Second, it's about the salvation of God's people. When the day of the Lord happens, God's people will be saved forevermore. What I mean by that is we'll never undergo tribulation of any kind. We will be found in a resurrected body. We will be, as it says in 1 John 3, like him. And we will see him as he is. And so we will reign with Christ for a thousand years. We will enjoy the eternal estate, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, etc. Okay, so it's going to be the salvation of God's people. The third thing, though, is it's also the judgment on God's enemies. And this judgment isn't just a temporary judgment, but it's going to be an eternal judgment in the day of the Lord when we get to the lake of fire. So three things, the establishment of Israel, all of their promises, it's the salvation of God's people, number two. Number three, it's wrath upon the enemies of God. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. Now, let's set up Isaiah 13. That was the reading assignment from last week, Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 11. Let me talk about Isaiah. Isaiah Broadly speaking, that book is broken into three components. The first component from chapters 1 through 38 is the book of the king. It's about this messianic king that's going to be enthroned on the throne of David. From chapters 39 all the way through 55, it's the book of the suffering servant. That is, this coming king who is the Messiah is also the one who suffers as a servant on behalf of his people to save them. Then from chapters 56 all the way to the end of the book to chapter 66, it's the book of the anointed conqueror. Not only is this Messiah the Davidic king, not only is he the suffering servant who pays for the sins of his people, but he's also the anointed conqueror who's coming again to crush his enemies and save his people. So that's what the book, broadly speaking, of Isaiah is about. Now, let's talk about the immediate context. In chapters 6 through 12 of Isaiah, it is all about God's faithfulness to Judah, despite how unfaithful they are. So, for example, God is certainly going to send the Assyrian judgment upon them because they broke a covenant, but this anticipates a future restoration made possible by the Messiah. This is why, for example, in Isaiah 9, what does it say? Our famous passage that we read in Isaiah 9 6 at Christmas time? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government is what? It's going to be upon his shoulders. What is he called? He's called Mighty God. So he's the God-man. We see in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, he is the shoot of Jesse. That is, he's a man who's a descendant of David. But Isaiah eleven ten, he's the root of David. He's the source of David. So we see that in Isaiah 11, 1 through 10... The remedy to Judah's problems is in fact from the Messiah. But then when you get to chapters 13 all the way through chapter 23, God shows us that His restoration made possible by Messiah is not just for the people of Judah, but it's a worldwide promise. And so that's why when you get into chapter 13, it talks about the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is not simply a blessing for God's people in Israel, but it's going to be a blessing for even the Gentiles as well. So it's very interesting, from chapters 13 all the way through 23, there are two lists of five nations each that are going to be under God's wrath in the day of the Lord. Let me just list them to you. Chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through 14, 27, is about Babylon. Chapter 14, 28 through 32 is about Philistia, 15.1 15.1 through 16.14 is about Moab. Damascus is 17.1 through 18.7. 19.1 through 20, verse 6 is about Egypt. Now, the reason I'm going, getting into this, when you get to chapter 21, it goes back to Babylon. It goes Babylon, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre. Now, why am I saying this? There's two lists of nations, five each. They both begin with Babylon. Why is Babylon the list, or at the head of the list, of the nations that are going to be judged by God in the day of the Lord. It's because Babylon represents ultimately what Satan and unregenerate mankind is doing in their fight against God. Remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? All of the nations gathered there and they wanted to make a name not for Yahweh but for themselves. Are you with me? Now that term, Babel for the Tower of Babel, carries over for Babylon. It's the same term used in Hebrew. So in five eighty six BC, when God can't stand anymore the sins of his people Israel, where does he send them? He sends them into Babylon. And what God is really saying, if you could just take the thirty thousand foot view, is says, you like Babylon, you like what they represent, you want to be like them, why don't you go there? Why don't you see what it's like in Babylon? So, in the future day of the Lord, we've been reading about this in the book of Revelation. What does unregenerate mankind do when they have one government? Do they build a perfect utopia, heaven on earth? They know they build Babylon. They bring hell to earth. So, Babylon is literal, but it's also symbolic. Remember, we don't have to choose between whether it's literal or symbolic. It's both. It's literal. It literally will be restored. But it's also symbolic of everything that's anti-God. That's why Babylon is the head of the list. So, the reason I point that out is we're going to turn our Bibles here to Isaiah 13. I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 13. And we'll start in verse 6. And I want to read this text with you. And again, the reason I'm going to be reading this to you is because this is the text that Jesus, I believe, picks up on in his all of a discourse about the 70th week of Daniel. So we're going to be making these connections. Now, as we turn to Isaiah 13, what's very interesting, you may want to jot this down. Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 16, is about the future day of the Lord. That's a judgment that is still in the future. It's never happened in history yet. It's going to be the worldwide judgment that we read about in Revelation chapter 6 through really through chapters 19. Alright? Well, when you get to Isaiah 13, verses 17 through 22, God shows us that he's going to be good for the far-term judgment by judging Babylon in the near term. And remember, he sends in 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire, to destroy Babylon. That's oftentimes how prophecy works. What God will do is he'll say, here's the plan for Babylon in the future day of the Lord, but so you know that I'm good for it, I'm going to judge the Babylon that existed for example in Ezekiel's day in the short term. And the judgment of the short term Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar was king over, etc., that judgment is a sign that God is going to be faithful to the ultimate judgment of Babylon in the future day of the Lord. Okay, so as we turn to Isaiah 13:6 through 11, this is all about the future. And again, how do we know that God is going to be good for this? Well, because when you get to verses 17 through 22 of this chapter, he prophesies the destruction of Babylon at the hands of the Medo-Persians, and he pulls it off. That's how we know he's going to be good for this judgment that's going to be a worldwide judgment. Listen to what he says, Isaiah 13, 6 through 11. Verse 6, he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, stop there for just a moment. The term near here in Hebrew does not mean imminent or at hand as tachos does in the Greek that we were learning in Revelation, but instead it means something in the near distant future. So, the near distant future would be sometime after the first advent of Christ. So, this is something still in the future. Notice it goes on to say, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Stop there. What's the day of the Lord about? Well, it's about destruction from the hand of the Almighty. Now, as we continue reading, you're going to see that this destruction is not just a local event, it's a global or universal event. He says, Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Let me stop there in verses 7 through 8. Notice in verse 7, Excuse me, it's actually in verse 8. Notice the reference where it says, they will be terrified, pains and anguish will take hold of them. The term pains there that you see is the term odin. That term has to do with labor pains. Now, that's the same term that Jesus uses in Matthew 24, 8, when he discusses the opening phase of the 70th week of Daniel. Remember he talks about there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be famines and earthquakes. All of those things you see happen in Revelation chapter 6. Jesus says those are odin, labor pains. Why is he using that? Because he's linking directly back to Isaiah 13.8, showing you that this time period that he's discussing, the 70th week of Daniel, is in fact also the day of the Lord. Now, What's very interesting is the Apostle Paul uses the same term in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Remember he says, while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains. Odin. Paul borrows the term from Jesus. Jesus, who is God, who inspired Isaiah, is taking his words historically from Isaiah to show us that, yes, the 70th week is all about it's all about the day of the Lord. It's about these labor pains. Now, labor pains, you women who have had labor pains, you know more about this than we guys do. But I'll tell you, my wife, I saw her go through these things. And let me explain how this works. Your wife, I don't know what it feels like, but I can tell you that through the entire pregnancy, your wife is not in labor pains. There's discomforts of the pregnancy. But what happened to us is we were still five weeks away from the birth of our son, and we lay down to watch a comedian, and we were laying down, we were laughing, hooping it up, and her water broke. At that point, it came on, there was no warning. There was nothing on my wife's forehead that said, your water's going to break, your child is coming tonight. There was no warning. What happened is her water broke. I told her to put it back in, by the way. I thought you could do that. There had to be a way to fill that back up because I knew we were still five weeks away. I didn't want them to be premature. But she says, no, it doesn't work that way. We've begun the process where the son, our son will be delivered. So you and I, as we live in the church age, we're living during the discomforts of the pregnancy. But when these labor pains come, it's always at hand. The water can break at any moment, and the pains come. So the way the Hebrews conceived of it is after the seven years of labor pains, what would be birthed was the Messianic age. So we would go from this age to the next age. And so even though that birthing process would be painful, the baby that would be born would be the most beautiful of all. The
1: messianic age. That's the idea. Yeah, Bob. I want to ask about something you said a little earlier. Yeah. That God did judgments in history in order to get our attention that he will indeed keep his word. Now, I think there's been confusion on that, yeah, especially amongst a lot of conservatives. And that is this, because I ran into that sometime when I've been on the radio and people are calling in. Right. There are people saying, if God doesn't judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Right, right. I've heard that, yep. Okay. And I said, No you don't understand what an exemplary judgment is. Yeah, amen. Okay? That God in history made an example out of Sodom and Gomorrah or Babylon yeah. or Egypt or any of these other kingdoms, right. Canaan, uh, doesn't imply that that's how he's going to run his universe. Exactly. In other words, we can look for catastrophic events and when they happen get our morals from from analyzing them.
0: Exactly. So
1: if there's an earthquake somewhere, that those people are evil. Right. If there's a volcano, those people are evil. Right. If there's a hurricane, those people are evil. And I think that's just kind of wishful thinking because we get so angry yep. about all the wickedness. But did God ever say that any time some country gets wicked, he's going to send fire from heaven. No, he never he never order. said that. There's right. no such thing. These are exemplary because they show us that God considers this sinful. Yeah. And that we can't expect that we're ultimately going to get by with anything.
0: Exactly right. Okay, exactly so right.
1: when I, I said in the 80s there were a lot of discussion like that. Yeah. And I'd say no, you don't understand what the Bible's saying. Yeah. Okay? Just because you are upset about something going on somewhere, you're not going to call fire down from heaven right. and burn up some certain state of the union you don't like. Exactly. Okay? And God doesn't owe anybody an apology. That's why should any Christian say that? Right, right. It's like God doesn't know how to un- run his universe. And God's not allowed to bring a judgment on somebody out of his own sovereign purposes, like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. What we should do is just learn what, what God wills and what he doesn't will. Great. You know, Bob, that's a, such an important point because what it does is it tells us,
0: when we understand our Bibles, that we have to be content as Christians for the wrath to come. Yeah. And the example I like to use is, do you remember um, John the Baptist? He talked to the Pharisees. He said, who told you brood of vipers to flee from the wrath to come. The wrath is always placed, the wrath of God, as we live in this new covenant time period, it's always placed in the eschatological age, in the 70th week of Daniel. What that means is you and I cannot know when, whether any given event here and now is the wrath of God. Let me explain what Bob is driving at too, and why this is so significant. How many times do you see a tornado outbreak, and it'll, it'll wipe out a bunch of evangelical godly churches in the south? Well, the left will look at that, and they'll say, look, at God is judging these intolerant ones because they're hateful bigots. Okay, well, then we have a tornado that wipes out some left-wing church in Minneapolis, and we as conservatives say, look, God's judging them because they tolerate homosexuality. When in reality, because there's no authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene of history, we can't know whether any given event is the wrath of God. Just like Bob was saying, you and I don't know these things and therefore, we have to be content with what we can know. We can't determine theology from nature. That's the point that Bob has been driving at in critical issues commentary for years and years. We can't know theology. We can't know what God's will is through nature. However, the exemplary, exemplary judgments that Bob was referring to are listed in the Bible that serve as examples that we know God is displeased with sin. For example, we're going to read this passage later in 2 Peter chapter 3... Remember the false teachers were saying, this Jesus isn't coming. This Jesus is never going to intervene in history. Well, the apostles were saying, no, Jesus is going to intervene in history. One of the arguments that Peter makes in 2 Peter 3 is he says to the false teachers who claim God will never intervene in history, he says it escapes their notice that God has. He intervened in creation. He intervened in the flood. He intervened in Sodom and Gomorrah. These supernatural interventions show us that God will not allow sin to go unpunished indefinitely. That's why the flood, that's why the judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah serve as exemplary judgments. Judgments like that will occur, not the flood in the sense of water, but the judgments in the sense of fire will occur in the 70th week of Daniel once again. Yeah? I would just want to emphasize that not only can we not, we don't know that those uh, natural disasters, not only do we not know that they are the judgment of God, I think we can know that they are not. Because those things are have to do more with the curse. Yeah, amen. Well said. The what I'm, what I'm driving at, Scott, is I don't know what God's purpose is because it's not revealed. Was his purpose in sending, for example, Katrina? Um, I, I don't know what his purposes are. This is something within the hidden will of God. Now, providentially from history, by the way, providence contains, as Bob often says, both good and evil. We can see people that will come to faith as a result of some tragedy and we'll, we'll know probably in, in history that some perished uh, to eternity. In other words, they were lost. But here's what we can know. You're right, the, the world is filled by the curse. That will remain with us until the coming of Christ. But what we, we can tell people is that on any given day, it can be your last. And the last thing people want to have is to die in their sins. Hebrews 9, says it's a once for a says it's appointed once for a man to die, but after that comes judgment. So there's a lot of ways to get killed out of this world. We can choke on our steak tonight or we can get hit by a a, a wicked driver who's drunk or what have you. But the point is we have to be ready and found in Christ. So you're right. I think you're right. It's part of the curse. However, I wouldn't say that we can know or can. I would just simply say any given event that's a cataclysmic event, we just don't know what God's purpose is. That's what I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But we can't know his moral law from the Bible. Exactly. Okay. So we got to be careful not to assume that whoever had a worst catastrophe is the worst sinner. Exactly. Because Jesus corrected that here. That's right. Now there's a passage, and I don't have a concordance with me, <laughs> yeah. but there's a passage somewhere in the New Testament that says, as an example to those who would, where is that? If somebody has a concordance, they probably can find it. Yeah. I don't know if it's in Peter, but uh there's, there's a, Peter three. The word example is found in the New Testament in that context.
0: Oh yeah, these, these things serve as an example for us. For
1: Those who would thereafter live ungodly lives.
0: Yeah, and that might be Jude, that one. Um, Maybe but I know it,
1: yeah, I know exactly there's also in Second Peter it three I don't
0: know things. Yep. No, I know what you mean. And it happens every day. <laughs> no, thank you. Well I'll tell you what, I'll keep reading this text, but I want you to see the significance of Isaiah thirteen. It's something that Jesus alluded to. The labor pains is exceedingly uh, important. Now, we're at Isaiah thirteen nine it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. Now, stop there for just a moment. The term land, Eretz in Hebrew, uh, by the way, uh, the newspaper in Israel, one of their major newspapers, is Ha Eretz, which means it's the definite article attached to that, the land. Well, Eretz can be either rendered land or world. Here, if you're a note-taker, I would render it as world. This is universal. The reason why is just down below, you're going to see a term used, tavel, which means the whole inhabited World That is inhabited by human beings. Okay? So, notice here, it's the entire land. It's going to be a desolation. Notice he says, he will exterminate its sinners from it. So, stop there. The role or goal of the day of the Lord is to exterminate sinners from the land, from the earth. Now, let's remember, what does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 21 through 22? He says, these are the worst, I'm paraphrasing, this is the worst time period ever. If those days not be cut short no flesh would survive so what's very interesting is Jesus talks about the 70th week of Daniel being a time period where if they weren't cut short no humans would survive the prophet Isaiah is talking about the time period of the day of the Lord is one in which God exterminates sinners from the land from that I can I, I think it's fair to surmise that Jesus and Isaiah are referring to the same time period are you with me so let's keep reading. It says, notice, now notice the cosmic events. Verse 10, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Now stop there. In the 70th week of Daniel, there are five cosmic disturbances. Not one, not two, not three, not four, five. Five cosmic disturbances where you have a shaking of the heavenly bodies. The last one occurs at the end of the 70th week, where Jesus says, After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, etc., etc. Okay? That's the day of the Lord. That's what's being referred to here. It's going to be a cosmic event. This isn't a local judgment upon a local city. This isn't a judgment on a local nation. This is a cataclysmic, worldwide event. That's what we have to get our heads around. Notice he says, verse 11 this is isaiah 13:11 thus i will punish the world stop there the term in hebrew tavel means the whole inhabited world every part of the world that's inhabited by a human being is going to be judged and that's why we saw above when it says he exterminates sinners from the land we know the land isn't just the land of israel but it's the entire globe okay so he's going to punish the entire world for its evil he says and the wicked for their iniquity I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Okay, I'm sorry, we got some comments or questions here. Yeah, Brian.
2: I wanted to say that the worldwide destruction uh, is similar to the flood in the sense that there's people that believe that the the flood of Noah was localized, but the word that you're using there is the same. So it's a worldwide destruction then, worldwide destruction
0: then. I agree with that, yeah. Just as the flood was a worldwide event, this next judgment will be the same. The difference is the first was by water, the second will be by fire, as it were. Yeah, but very well said, very good. Yeah, Eric. I'm sorry, Lonnie. Um,
2: yeah, that verse, I believe, is Jude 7. Jude 7.
0: Jude 1, 7 Oh, okay. Bob, do you want, or do one of you have it? Lonnie, Bob? I yeah, got uh, Okay.
1: He's got it. Okay,
0: Brian. Brian's going to read Jude 1.7. And again, this is about how judgments in the past function as exemplary judgments for the future.
2: Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited
0: as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Excellent. They're an example. Wow. So, again, these judgments that happen, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, they serve as example judgments that we know that God will not tolerate sin indefinitely. When is he going to judge it, though? It's in the day of the Lord. And that's why you and I as Christians, we can be content. We can say, you know what, I don't know if any given event here and now, any sickness, any illness, any, any hurricane, tornado, fire outbreak, I don't know if it's the wrath of God. But I do know the 70th week is coming, and God will bring his wrath. Yes, Jessica.
2: Um, when he was first mentioning the verse about the example, I immediately went First Corinthians, and so oh. I found that one. So here's another okay, one, basically saying the same thing. First Corinthians 10, I'm going to start with verse 1. Yeah. Um, now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire the evil
0: things as they did. Great, Jessica, great reading. I love that. In 1 Corinthians 10 yeah, free coffee yeah. <laughs> very good reading in 1 Corinthians 10 Paul is showing that, look, Israel they had a form of baptism, they were through the Red Sea with Moses they had a form of the Lord's Supper so in a sense they were like the church we have the Lord's Supper, we have baptism and yet just as they fell because of unbelief, those in the church just because they have baptism just because they have the Lord's Supper, they can fall too why? because of idolatry The warning is against idolatry. But the example of judgment in the past serves as a warning for us in the future. Well said. Good reading. Yeah. Now, what I want to do is take our attention to the screen here about the day of the Lord. When we read Isaiah 13, my claim is that this is exactly what Jesus is referring to in his Olivet Discourse. And what Jesus is referring to is something called the broad day of the Lord. In the broad day of the Lord... This happens let me pull up my pointer at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. It happens right here. So the rapture of the church occurs. God pours out His wrath, and this broad day of the Lord can think of it conceptually like this. It goes on indefinitely throughout all of eternity. Now, why do I say that this day of the Lord is a broad period of time like that? Well, first of all, there's two things we want to keep in mind. First of all, this broad day of the Lord comes like a thief. there's no warning. But second, we know its duration extends into eternity, because the wrath of God is eternal upon His enemies. We see an example of that, for example, in Second Peter chapter three, verse 10. Let's turn our Bibles there. Turn your Bibles to Second Peter 3:10. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10. And again, Peter, as you turn there, is wrestling with false teachers. who are saying, this Jesus isn't coming. There's going to be no judgment. You can live any way you want. And that's why he used also exemplary judgments that happened in the past to say, no, God will not tolerate it indefinitely. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Notice how Peter describes the day of the Lord. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, why is that significant? Well, notice he's saying that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Jesus says His coming comes like a thief. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3, the day of the Lord comes like a thief. So, if it's to come like a thief, it's unexpected. Now, think about this. If you're living at the end of the 70th week of Daniel... And let's say you believe this is the day of the Lord, the beginning of it. How could that come like a thief? You've been tipped off for seven years by various signs that Jesus outlined. What's more, in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, it says, while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. That's the day of the Lord. Could you say peace and safety after you've gone through seven years of the worst warfare ever? Of course not. Of course you can't be saying that. Peace and safety, we just lost over half of the earth's population due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts through the locusts and the demons that came up from the abyss. The locusts are demons. That's what we read in the book of Revelation. Well, that's the worst time period ever. You're not going to be saying peace and safety there. That doesn't come like a thief. It doesn't come unexpectedly. But that's how the day of the Lord comes. But we know the day of the Lord is a broad period of time because notice in the 2 Peter 3.10... He says it's a day in which the elements will be burned up. Well, wait a minute. When did we read about the elements being burned up? Is that in the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years? No. In fact, it occurs after the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Remember, we're going to have a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, because all of the former things are burned up. That's Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So we know then that the day of the Lord extends for at least over a 1,000 years. So the best conception of the day of the Lord is it was a broad period of time. Just as I asked my grandpa, what was the gas price in your day or the price of gasoline? I wasn't referring just to a 24-hour period. I was referring to a day in the sense of a broad period of time. That's why the day of the Lord should be considered a broad period of time. Are you with me? Now, let's look at one other passage, and I want to connect this to both what Jesus said and what Isaiah said, what we just read in Isaiah 13. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. In fact, I'll back up one verse. I'll do 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. What's very interesting is, remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, this comes right after the teaching about the rapture. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Therefore, comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen, The Lord himself descends with the shout of the archangel, right with the trumpet of God, and he raises those who are dead in Christ first. But all of us who are alive also will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and therefore we will always be with him. Paul says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, right after the rapture, what does he talk about? He talks about the day of the Lord. Why? Because both come like a thief. That's why. First Thessalonians 5, 1-3, he says, Now as the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now stop there. The term thief in the night is exceedingly important and people, they gloss over it. Here's why the term thief, there's two different types of thieves in the Bible. There was a leistace and there was a kleptace. The kleptase was the one who used stealth to get what he wants. But the lacedase was a robber. He would just beat you over the head with a club. He used force. Well, the term lacedase is not used here, the term for force. The term that's used is kleptase. We've all heard of a kleptomaniac. That's a person who can't stop stealing. That comes right from the term kleptase. The term thief here is one who uses stealth meaning they're not going to tip you off as to when they're coming. That's the image that's being used. Jesus says in Matthew twenty four forty three that his coming is like a thief in the night. And he also uses kleptase, meaning it comes stealthily. Well, as Robert Thomas, he's a bygone scholar who just died recently. He was in his 90s, I believe, when he was still writing. He said, this is why the day of the Lord... If you look at the diagram and the rapture, the coming of Christ, have to be at the same time. Because if one preceded the other, one would cease to be like a thief. Are you with me? Because the other would tip you off to the fact that the other one was coming. That's why they can both be referred to as a thief in the night. Now, keep reading. Notice in verse 3, I'm back in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, while they're saying peace and safety... Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. Stop there. That's the very term Jesus used in Matthew 24, 8. Labor pains. Referring to the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. It's the same term that Isaiah used in Isaiah thirteen eight, 8. Odin in the Greek. Labor pains. So Isaiah uses it for the day of the Lord. Jesus uses it for the 70th week of Daniel. The Apostle Paul uses it for the day of the Lord. He says the day of the Lord comes like a thief. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains. What can we conclude? We can conclude that the day of the Lord and the 70th week of of Daniel are the same thing. That's what we're concluding. So we're clearing up confusion. That's why the same language is being used. By the way, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul takes 10 terms right from the Olivet Discourse and he just takes them right from Jesus and he uses them. That's why we know that Jesus and Paul are speaking of the same thing. Now, one other thing we want to look at in 1 Thessalonians, again, I want to reiterate this. Notice in verse 3 it says, while they're saying peace and safety, you could be saying peace and safety here because life went on as it always had. Remember, Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Now, stop there. I've heard, um, for example, Ruth Graham Lott say that the days of Noah, the point of Jesus' illustration there is that just as it was so sinful in the days of Noah, it will be sinful now. Well, that's not Jesus' point. Why? Now, I'm not claiming that there won't be sin now. That's obvious. But Jesus' point, says he says this. He says, while they're eating and drinking and given in marriage, sudden destruction came upon them. So let me ask you, from your knowledge of the Bible, is eating and drinking, is that sinful before God? No. Why doesn't Jesus bring up something sinful then if the point of the comparison between the days of Noah and the coming of the Son of Man was the point that both are equally wicked? Why doesn't Jesus say, well, just as they were engaged in this sexual sin in the days of Noah, they're doing it again? But that's not his point. He says, while they're eating and drinking, while they're given in marriage, in other words, life was going on as it always has. Life was going on. People are going to be married today. People are going to be go watch football. People are going to be doing all sorts of things that technically aren't sin. Sin, yes, will be always with us. But Jesus' point is life is going on as it always was, and sudden destruction comes. That's the way it was in the days of Noah. Life was going on as it always was. All they had was the preaching of Noah, from the Word. Noah received revelation from God. Wrath is coming. Build an ark. Noah, the proclaimer of righteousness, is building the ark. People may come up to him and say, hey, Noah, why are you building this ark? Because God said wrath is coming. They go, ha, 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 ha. We don't believe in any of that. In your generation, is there anything that people can look out the window and say, yes, wrath is coming? No, they have the preaching from you. And what do they do? They go, ha, 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 ha. But one day the wrath is coming. It's at hand. That's Jesus' whole point. It's going to break forth. Now, peace and safety... You could be saying peace and safety here at the beginning of the 70th week. But again, why do post-tribulationists say the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ is here, the rapture? Because you can't be saying peace and safety here. Would you say we have peace and safety after you saw the worst warfare that's ever come upon the planet? No. But you could deceive yourself into saying peace and safety here. And that's why we know that the broad day of the Lord, the rapture, the coming of Christ are all synonymous events. They happen what's called coterminously. They happen at the same time. So those are the pieces that I want you to see in your mind. And I want you to see that because you're going to have some post-tribulationalist, someday who will come up to you and say, well, wait a minute, what are you, some escapist? You're a Christian who doesn't want to realize that you're going to go through tribulation? Come on, buck up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Realize you're going to have to go through it. And they're going to make you feel bad. But once you see what the biblical data is saying... I ask him, how can you be saying peace and safety after you've gone through the world's worst tribulation ever? Jesus says it's so bad that unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. And at the end of that, you're saying peace and safety? No. It doesn't make any sense. So I'm sharing this with you because in our age, one of the most neglected doctrines is eschatology. Do you know why? It's because people will say, well, you have your view and they have their view. Well, what if we applied that to the atonement of Christ? I believe in the penal substantiary atonement of Christ. Jesus died once and for all on behalf of sinners so that He may bring us to God. And someone says, well, that's just your view. I believe Jesus died as a moral in, uh, the moral influence theory. That when Jesus died, we look at God and say, yes, He doesn't make a reprisal against those who kill. He's a loving God, but that's all it is. That's what the theological liberals said. Do we say, well, each has their view? No, we argue fiercely that the biblical data suggests that Jesus died as a substitute. Well, why can we know that, but we can't know eschatology? And it's not because eschatology is so confusing. We just have to read it for what it says. My biggest issue in eschatology is a rebuttal of the postmodern movement who says, you can't know. What I think we have to do is to stand firm and say, yes, we can know. It is clear. It's not muddled. John MacArthur, the famous preacher... He said, when it came, we believe in what's called the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. But if we are those who believe in the clarity of Scripture, do we believe that God muddled the ending? He got everything clear. We can understand everything. But when it comes to the end, we have no idea. Your view, person who's amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, we have no way of knowing the difference. No, we can know. That's the purpose of getting all the data out on the table and just going through it logically. Yeah, Eric.
2: Yeah, uh, just to kind of Um, support what you're saying. And, and, you know, there's so many references in Revelation and in Matthew 24 to the Old Testament. And so I just think a lot of times people don't understand it because there's a lot of data that is all over the place. And so you have to go through it in a linear way. We can only read one word at a time. We can only read one book at a time of the Bible. But we have to we have to get familiarized with it, so we start to get comprehensive in the way we understand it. Um, that's one reason I think that it gets, and, and a lot of people just, and, and okay, most of us that are here in this Bible study, we're, we're Christian people, we're amateurs, you know, but I think that the, the seminaries and the, uh, the, the the places that are the repositories of biblical learning, probably they've fallen down. I, I oh, yeah. kind of think, I was talking to my wife, I think that there's been about 150 years that probably has been the Bible has been neglected for, for yeah. about 150 years, both in Europe and the United States. So I wanted I'll to say. say that. The other thing I wanted to say, though, is this, and this is an example. When we talk about the rapture of the saints, which I believe it will be just right at the beginning yeah. uh, of the broad day of the Lord... And when you understand the, uh, and I know a lot of most of the people here in our church understand this, that the Hebrew wedding tradition, uh, spoken of in John fourteen, where Jesus says, "I will go to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you," and the Hebrew wedding tradition was that that the bride and the groom spent seven days together while the while the feast was going on, the celebration. So it really ties into the, a, a a rapture of the saints. It does. Right at the beginning. When when you tie all of it together it's the only thing that really ties all of these pieces together is what you're saying. You
0: know Eric you're not far off at all. I mean you're exactly on because Jesus himself says in Matthew 25 he likens it to the parable. Remember the the ten bridegrooms or ten what are they called? Virgins? Well the issue is when a groom would go to prepare a place in his father's home the bride didn't know when he was coming back. She had to be ready. And the point of that parable is that they don't know when he's coming. Why is that? Well, Because it comes like a thief in the night. And so the point is you have to be ready whenever the groom returns. What's interesting is the groom, while he was away, what, he, what would he do to, to make sure his wife knew that he loved him? He would send gifts. Well, Jesus, who is the groom, sends gifts. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit dispenses various gifts. Some are apostles, some are prophets. Some, why? So that we know that he loves us. So the, the imagery is there, absolutely. By the way, talking about seminaries, seminaries have been a disaster, unfortunately, in getting us into the Word of God. Next week I'll be sharing this. I'll be talking about a passage in First uh, Timothy. We're going to talk about the atonement of Christ, that he gave his life as a ransom for, for us, for all. That is, for all who believe. Well, that's the penal substitutionary doctrine of atonement, that Jesus is a substitute, him being the just, in our place, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. Well, let me tell you how this works in seminary. If you go to seminary, a professor who's, this is what I ran into at Bethel, so I can't say every seminary, but this is what I ran into at Bethel. They'll get some 26-year-old who got all of his degrees. He got his his high school diploma, he got his four-year, he gets his master's in theology, and he gets his Ph.D. So he does all the courses and all the required coursework in the seminary But he's never spent the time learning verse by verse teaching what the Bible says. So what he'll do is on class day number 64 on the atonement, when it comes to that in systematic theology, he'll list off seven different theories of the atonement. And then what he does is he leaves you with, well, they're all viable options. Well, some of them are just rank heresy and they have nothing to do with what the Bible is talking about. But why doesn't he help his students understand all of the biblical data, saying, well, no, let's look at this passage, this passage, this passage, this passage, and say, yes, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement because he doesn't know the doctrines himself. He hasn't seen the data. He knows the categories, and he can tell you what the possible categories are, but that's the problem with the seminaries. They lay out the categories, but the students who don't know their Bible say, well, they're all viable options, and they go out and they go tell their parishioners that. That's what I saw. So, to them, the moral influence theory that when Jesus died on the cross, it was just to show that God is loving. He didn't enter into a reprisal. He didn't retaliate. Well, that to them is a valid theory. But is that what the Bible teaches? Well, in Mark ten forty five, Jesus says he did not come to serve, excuse me, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For, on behalf of, in the substitution of. Second Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made Him, that's Jesus who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, substitution, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And on and on the data goes. So that's my point, is you're right. The reason why systematic theologies are oftentimes misleading is because they're not dealing with the text verse by verse
1: Uh, In getting into those issues. That's, I think, the problem. Yeah, Bob? Well, even the passage you cite, people misinterpret that to be the ransom theory of the atonement. Yes. Claiming the ransom was paid to Satan. Rather than God. Rather than God, because they can't... It's another theory, yeah. They don't like to think that God would require blood atonement. Yeah. So he had to buy us back from Satan. Right. Okay, so at the heart now with the postmodern thing yeah. going on, they're attacking whether any language can convey meaning. Right, right. And that meaning is a state of consciousness. Right, right. Okay, so uh, Brian McLaren takes all of this that you're just talking about. Yeah. So throws up his hands. Yeah, can't know. We can't know any of that.
0: What would you call him, the little engine that can't? The little
1: engine that couldn't. <laughs> but... Um, But then they turn to the most esoteric uh, philosophy. In fact, uh, uh, McLaren's favorite guy is Ken Wilber, who's a Buddhist. Yeah. And they they spew out all this stuff that hardly anybody can understand. Right. But they're telling us, we can't really know what God said. Right. Because words don't really convey meaning. But then they write a book with words. Exactly. Tell us what they believe. And yeah. so I'm not going to agree with Francis Schaefer. Anytime you have to use what you're trying to <laughs> refute to make your own point, you're wrong. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Or maybe that was Guy. Ge- I know Guys are Yeah, that. exactly. I love that. Very and good so point. Yeah. We shouldn't give up knowing the fact that some of these things are debated. Yeah. Is for sure. That's right. But. Why give up? Why not try to find out? Maybe there is a better reading. Exactly. And we can know what Jesus said and what he meant. And it's not wrong to say, I'm not sure yet. Right, that's right. During your process. Because I had the hardest time. Me too. Years. Matthew 24, literally for decades. Yeah, me too. Because what you're saying here, as I read Matthew 24, didn't seem to jive. Right, Because when the disciples asked, he started talking about labor pains. Right, right. So that made me think, well, labor pains are maybe something we're going to see going on right now. Yeah. And I couldn't resolve it. Right. And one of my friends used to call me a rapture agnostic. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But then that chiastic structure. Yeah, that clears it up. That peri-day. Yeah. <coughs> Convince me, because this is so common in the Bible. Yeah, Jesus answered the the first question last. Last. Yep. The last question first, and Perry Day is the exactly break off. Then it all made sense. And that took me 25 years. Yeah. I, was, I admit I'm a slow learner. Yeah. But no, I I am too. It took the me years The evidence too. came out, and now I believe in a pre-trib rapture. Right. And I'm willing to state it. With some certainty because of that fact. So we should keep trying to learn.
0: Bob, let me point that out, what you're talking about in Matthew 24. And Luanne, I'm sorry, I'll come right back to you right after this. Look on the board with me, if you will. Let me just get rid of some of this. Well, I can leave the broad day of the Lord. You know what that's all about. What Bob is talking about is most people, and this was me included, Matthew 24 is the longest discourse written in our entire New Testament. But it's perhaps the most difficult Um, I called it an enigma all wrapped up in a question mark. I couldn't make heads or tails of it until I saw these grammatical uh, connections that Bob was referring to. But let me explain. If 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 you look at this diagram, I can help explain what the issues are. When you're reading Matthew 24, what most evangelicals do is they place the signs in the church age. So this is the first advent of Christ. This is the church age that will last all the way until the 70th week of Daniel. What most evangelicals do is they believe Jesus in Matthew 24 is talking about signs that occur here. But what Bob and I are proving is that no, all of the signs are actually here. They're within the 70th week. What signs do we have to tip us off as to when this will come? None. A wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it. So all the signs are within the 70th week. Now proof of that is in Matthew 24:15. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. That's a key timing indicator. When does the abomination that causes desolation occur? Is that during the church age? That's at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. So what we're claiming is that all of the signs Jesus gives are within the 70th week, and he addresses that from Matthew 24... Verse four all the way to verse thirty five. But then he answers the question, When will the seventieth week come? Matthew twenty four, thirty six tips us off to that. He says, Perry day. Now concerning the day or the hour, he says, No one knows. In other words, when this time period comes, you and I are living during this time period. When does this seventieth week come? You can't know. He says it eight different ways. It's like a master away from his house, and there were servants in charge, and they didn't know when the master was coming. It's like a person who's waiting in their home, and a thief breaks in. It's it's like the parable of the virgins who are waiting for the return of the groom. You can't know. You can't know. You can't know. In fact, he says that there's no angel in heaven who knows, not even the son, but the father alone. Now, when he says that the son doesn't know, Remember, Jesus can operate from either nature. My favorite example of explaining what that means, how does the Son not know something? Well, remember, Jesus can operate through either nature. He can either operate through His human nature or His divine nature. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when Jesus was in the boat with, with His disciples on the Sea of Galilee? Well, He's asleep in the back of the boat. Now, you might ask the question, well, why does God need to sleep? Well, remember, He's truly man. And whatever can be said of man, is true of him except for sin. He really would get tired. He slept. But remember, the disciples complain. They say, "Well, why don't you care that we're going to drown?" Well, Jesus, the next moment, stands up, and he operates through his divinity. He says, "Peace and be, peace and be still." And the whole sea was still. And we know from Job that only Yahweh can tame the waves of the sea. So Jesus was demonstrating. In one moment that he was a man, he was asleep in the back of the boat. But in the very next moment, he operated from his divine, from his divinity, and he could calm the sea. And both are true. Remember, what we're saying with Jesus Christ is it's one God, or excuse me, one person, right, with two natures, truly God and truly man. We cannot confuse the natures, but we also cannot separate the natures. Okay, it's one person with two natures. And forevermore, he will be this God-man who can operate through either nature. So when Thomas, or excuse me, uh, remember Peter's restored? He says, Lord, you know all things. That can be rightly said of Jesus in his divinity. But Jesus can also say, where have you laid them? Remember, he would ask people, where'd you lay her? And the next moment, they can say, well, he knows all things. Why? Because he can operate through either nature. But that helps us understand Matthew 24, 36. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. You have no idea when the 70th week happens. It happens like a thief. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. I want you to see then that the 70th week of Daniel is synonymous with the broad day of the Lord. It is synonymous with the tribulation period. It is synonymous with the coming of Christ. That's how significant the 70th week of Daniel is. It is the key to understanding, I think, eschatology. Okay, with that, I'm sorry, Luann, you had some comments and questions. Well, mine was
2: just going back to what Eric and you had also said about the seminaries, you know, and, and how, what they're teaching. Yeah. But I had read a short um, article from a millennial pastor, and his points were why we're losing the millennials you know, from church. Yeah. And um, the three that stuck out were with me. Were because we're using these terms like you're providing for us, and yeah. he called it the Christianese. Yeah. And then um, he, don't give us any more Bible studies. We don't need those. And then what he did say they needed was to do more, more social programs, more social tasks. Yeah. You know, so that's what these young people are getting, and we just appreciate so much that we're getting these terms over, you know, I in know. review.
0: Thank you. You know, when I was a flight instructor, I didn't allow my student, I'd say, you know this aileron, don't worry about the technical term, just call it a doohickey. And this flap here, that's a whatchamacallit, and if you want to press the rudder, well, that's a, you know, gizmo. So you're flying along, you say, hit the gizmo, no, get the whatchamacallit. I mean, the point is, it gets absurd. Why don't we just teach, I would teach my student, because I cared for them, what the technical terms were that they needed to know. The same thing should apply to the most important thing, that is knowing the Bible. We should understand doctrine. That's one of the goals that Bob and I have had for years. I know him much longer than I. We've had the desire to teach theology to the church. Why? Because it's not happening in the seminary. So one of Bob's goals has always been to get a seminary online, to have a bunch of classes. Dana's is doing an overview of the Old Testament. Um, we have a logic class. We have all these different teachings online. Why? Because the seminaries have abdicated their role... We need to bring it back to the church. Theology belongs back in the church. The seminaries aren't doing it. So, yeah, we can know. We must know. And that should be what we're devoted to, knowing these great things. So, with that, I want to, um, I'll stop in prayer in just a moment. But we're going to have uh, Vladimir and Oksana come up. They're going to share a video with you and a testimony of what they're doing But what I want everyone to do is get your uh, food, get your donuts or coffee, and take a little break if you need to. But then come back if you can in 10 minutes. We want to hear from Vladimir and Oksana. In that time period, I'll get everything set up. Uh, Let me just pray for them. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our day. I thank you for Vladimir and Oksana and um, what a blessing they are to us to hear about the work of proclaiming the gospel in Moldova and elsewhere. And um, I lift them up to you, Lord. I pray for your care to be upon them. I pray for our teacher, Bob, Lord. We thank you for him as he's teaching us in Ephesians. I pray that we would have ears to hear your word. I pray, Lord, for blessing and protection on our day now. In Jesus' name, amen.